Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. If you're listening to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations, as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. Bring, bring, bring. Hi, Cade. Hey, Cade. Hey, what's up? <laughs> Pretty good. How are you doing today? I am good. Yeah, just um, coffee, etc. Feeling pretty good. Nice. How are you guys? Pretty good. We're okay. We're ready for Berlin to enter springtime. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, there's kind of like a, a uniform gray that I'm sure we're sharing right now. Sadly, we can't do this in the same space. It'll be really nice. I, got, I can't wait for this moment. I mean, we obviously started this podcast during lockdown. Mm-hmm. I can't wait for the moment where people who live like 20 minutes away from us, we can just do this in a room together. Yeah. Can you imagine that would be so much more fun? With, um, a, li- with a live streamed audience, potentially? Ooh, ooh. yeah. No, all the, all the things. All the bells um, and whistles. Yeah. So, so we're, yeah, we're good. I'm just, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready for some sun there. That can, nice. can you imagine how awkward it's going to be the first episode of Interdependence in like that is actually real? If you if you live stream that, like no one's gonna know, like that, that they to put their hands anywhere or like sit in certain ways. All of the terrible like things that people have picked, like the habits that people have picked up during quarantine, are all just gonna be like immediately <laughs> so presented to each other. It's just gonna be like it's so true. <laughs> no, it's true actually. Like the the few times we've like gone outside and like seen friends after like twenty five minutes, I'm like, can I change the channel? You know. <laughs> 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 or like, oh, that is rude. No, I don't mean it. But it, no, it's just—it's just your brain's trained differently. It's nothing—nothing nothing about the friends in particular. It's yeah, just like, yeah, no, I hear you. I'm just kind of like, oh, I'm tired now. I, I'd like to pause this and resume it later, please. But yeah. I also feel like certain social graces, as I think Kate is alluding to, have just kind of we've forgotten them. Yeah. Like how to like know when to pause in a conversation and just things True. like that. Or like- to be fair, I was never good at that. Um, I, I guess I guess the big one for me is uh, not being able to see myself anymore after being mm. in like video conferences for a year mm-hmm. and being able to see my stupid face on every single call. <laughs> like, what do I do with that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to behave now with, I can't see my face. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's, that is a good point. Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, anyway, we're, we're definitely planning. I mean, we have these kind of grand plans to, um, to at least host some of these discussions in real space with people. Once we're allowed to do that, have some like quite ambitious ideas of how you know, remote people could participate and so on. Um, cool. Well, okay. So, so it's clear that we know each other. Um, yes. The, the, but, but would you mind maybe giving a, a, an introduction to who you are for the people who don't know? Yes. Uh, my name is Cade Deem. I run a research organization called the New Design Congress, which has been going for just over a year now. And my work is sits somewhere between uh, digital security and design and systems thinking. So yeah, the New Design Congress is a research organization that sees, we, we start from a single uh, philosophy, which is that the all infrastructure is an expression of power or a, a desire to build power in the case of building infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And although it seems like that's an obvious conclusion to draw or, not, or an obvious observation, the reality is that like in a lot of the discourse or a lot of the attempts to reconfigure infrastructure for a better society or for better outcomes or different kinds of outcomes, I feel like we pull away from that or retreat from that, that starting point, that, that, that perspective. And so what the New Design Congress is trying to do over the last year is really examine the first principles of certain parts of digital infrastructure uh, as a way of antagonizing for different kinds of perspective and different kinds of thinking. So mm-hmm. last year was a very wide, uh, I guess, landscape review during the pandemic, where we were able mm-hmm. to very much do consultancies with different organizations and do our own work and be- get a little bit more philosophical and, and, and spread it quite 
quite broadly and cover lots of areas. But in 2021, 2022, we're really looking at these concepts of first principles. So we're looking at the first principles of identity, the first principles of research, the first principles of ownership, and the first principles of access. And what I think is that when you look at these and we reframe these uh, almost uh, almost ide- in a very ideologically rigorous way towards the idea of infrastructure as ownership, then we start to really assess the underlying sociopolitical realities of, of what we're trying to build and what has been built in the past and how we can change the course of the trajectory of, of certain kinds of uh, cultural or social tr- momentums into something else. Mm-hmm. Before that, I was... Uh, I guess my history is is part tech, part security. I started by prototyping Signal with Open Whisper Systems back in 2014 before it was launched, which was pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then have kind of had one foot in the crypto space and one foot in digital security. And more recently, when I moved to Berlin, uh, I was the lead researcher, uh, lead designer and, and security researcher at uh, Tactical Tech in Berlin, which is an organization that examines the civic outcomes around data and privacy and governance. Wonderful. And for those listening too, when you say crypto, do you mean like capital C crypto as in cryptography or crypto as in internet money? Because <laughs> I know, because we because we initially met each other through, uh, you were doing work with Spider Oak, I remember, which yes. for, for those who don't know is like an encrypted uh, data storage mm-hmm. Uh, service that I still use. Yeah, totally. yeah, that's um, dope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was the um, first designer there. That was that was pretty. That was a wild time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. But but I wonder just just to clarify because the terms often used interchangeably, and I'm guessing uh, for you that it being used interchangeably has more weight than it does for most people. <laughs> well, yeah, it does, and I think like for me, it, it's really it has been in both worlds. So I'm not a cryptographer. Uh, my role is really to examine these from what I would consider like a socio uh, socio technical security perspective, which is instead of looking at digital security from a perspective of securing devices and device keys and cryptography and so forth, instead the socio technical security framework would be where you look at security as relationships and you're mm-hmm. focused on the relationships between two or more people rather than the relationships between two or more devices. And at the same time, I was also part of the early uh, Bitcoin scene back in 2013, partially where my career really came into its own a bit. Um, and and that was yeah. So I'd, I'd been involved in the very early the very early blockchain scene in a sense. So a bit of both is that answer. <laughs> That's great. I didn't actually know that about Bitcoin. Yeah, we built um, one of the first bank cards for crypto. Um, but it was oh, in I Australia. Did, yeah. I- I did know that actually. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so it was in Australia, so nobody knows about it because the time zones all messed up. But yeah, we uh, <laughs> we, we 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 built this. We built a bank card, which was basically on the back end. It would just on demand do like uh, quick swaps. It was a prepaid card. I guess it's how it works now all over. But it was a prepaid card that yeah. you would. We built in the back end a system that would automatically do an exchange to fiat, and then you would pull it like out during the transaction. Uh, and I tell you what, it was. Uh, certainly one of the greatest thrills ever was yeah. <laughs> was walking up to an ATM with a white card and with a single magnetic stripe on the back of it and nothing else on it. And then yeah. putting it into a machine, pressing a pin and then typing $100 and then actually having $100 come out of it felt a Crazy. bit like, it felt a bit like Edward, Edward Norton in, is it Edward Norton? No, it's not Edward Norton. Edward Furlong in um, Terminator 2 at the beginning when he's like, <laughs> you know, this tiny kid, like, Hacking a, an ATM and all this money coming out, I felt a bit like yeah. that when we did it. <laughs> that, that does, sound, yeah, that does sound kind of like a dream. What it's year kind of, was this? Did you say 2013? Yeah, 2013, 2012, That's 2013. crazy. That's yeah. so early. That's yeah, super. Wow, early. the space has changed so much since then. Maybe we can get into that. Some. <laughs> totally, and it's this is also great. I mean, so so to to as a kind of like preamble, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about the the work at at, at the New Design Congress, and we're going to get into later um, some criticisms. Of, of crypto that I think are, you know are well qualified are well qualified coming from you but yeah indeed the space has changed quite a bit uh, <laughs> quite quite a bit uh, uh, since then um, I thought like just to just to kind of establish the context for the conversation I believe now you wrote a piece I think this was in like 2018 mm-hmm. so a few years ago now that as far as I'm aware was like the inaugural kind of piece of the new design Congress or mm-hmm. or this kind of thread called on weaponized design and. And I feel like for the purpose of our discussion, at least, 
it's really good to maybe cover that in a general sense because that principle kind of reappears a bunch of times. Yes. Uh, w- yeah. Would you mind like describing what what you believe weaponized design to be, and maybe how that ties into some of the first principles things that you're looking at with the NDC? You got the date right, 2018. For- <laughs> Boom. <laughs> uh, so weaponized design is a term that describes a f- a designed system that harms users whilst performing exactly how it is supposed to. Mm-hmm. So unlike you, there's, 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 there's a bunch of related concepts here that actually, what, what, the reason why weaponized design as a concept exists is because there was a series of conditions and events and that were happening that didn't fit into the current uh, vocabulary or taxonomy of, of, like observable phenomena, if you like, around digital systems. So on one hand, you have dark UX patterns, which is the act of tricking a user into doing something that's against their best interests. So an example of that would be uh, swapping the cancel and okay button to trick someone into consenting to hand over some personal data. Mm -hmm. They expect the buttons to be in a certain... Yeah, I know everyone has, Mm -hmm. right? You expect (laughs) the button to be in a certain way. GDPR, like... The GDPR um, consent screens are a great example of this, right? Where it's all mm-hmm. designed to make you just click through and ignore everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side, you have things like the social engineering attacks, like spear phishing or phishing or cat phishing, these sorts of terms that describe ways in which people use digital systems in order to trick you into handing some kind of personal information over or access to something. In this case, neither of those two, there's, there was a series of things that were happening essentially since the iPhone really launched or like mobile tech, mobile computing really took off, but it's sort of been happening a little bit earlier, but had been invisible because of uh, the relative nicheness of computing and uh, that it hadn't been adopted so widely by the general public. And so a really good example of this was when iCloud first launched, I, I bring up Apple because it's the personal story of how I got to this term of weaponized design, which is essentially mm-hmm. when the iCloud photo hack happened in 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, the way that happened was uh, from two things. One was a, a social engineering attack in which people would trick uh, iCloud users into handing over their credentials so they could then break into accounts. But the missing piece of this was that at the same time, these early iPhones were, and they still do today, but these early iPhones had switched on this feature to back up every single photo into iCloud. Mm-hmm. And the, the 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 subtlety here was that no one really knew that it was happening. People kind of mm-hmm. knew, but it was a new concept that no one had really given much thought to. Yeah. So what you end up with is a situation in which a whole bunch of people's private lives got violated in a way that they had no idea it was actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and nothing broke, nothing really in that system. The only thing that happened was an external pressure from a social engineering attack, but it also would have hap- wouldn't have happened if... Uh, if that system had been designed in such a way that took into account the sexuality or the sexual nature of personal computing, the fact that, mm-hmm. that yeah. mobile phones are a form of sexual expression. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's an example. It's the, the visceral example for me because I knew somebody at the, uh, at the time I was living in Australia and she had been targeted in a similar kind of way. One of the things with the iCloud photo hack that remains really troubling to me is that the, the discourse around that focused entirely on celebrity, but it was a tactic that was used against a lot of people. The iCloud mm-hmm. photo hack being, of course, here where people broke into accounts and uh, stole images and spread um, sensitive images of celebrity, mostly female celebrities. And the thing is, is that that discourse focused entirely around the celebrity aspect of the hack, but it happened to everyday people as well. And that yeah, yeah, really yeah. changed what I thought computers were capable of at the time. And of course, I knew this from my interest in digital digital security, but just seeing how easy it was to completely bypass everything through this poorly designed system just changed everything for me in that moment. And so for the next couple of years before I wrote the piece, I was looking for examples to make sure that this was actually something that could be quantified as a, with a term. And so you see this repeatedly every single year. I mean, another example is uh, marketing campaigns uh, that use targeted advertising data to determine whether women are pregnant and then sending a a month before they're due, sending uh, materials that's then read by their parents. So their birth 
like the fact that they're pregnant is disclosed through advertising material rather than by the person in the family. So it's once again, a completely, uh, well, it's not a benign system, but in the eyes of the system designer, it's a benign system yeah. uh, that doesn't take into account the socio-technical security, if you like, of that system. Yep. And and so this this then led to the, yeah, the piece Weaponized Design, which is, as you've sort of correctly identified, a kind of foundational text for the Union Design Congress. It's interesting. I feel like everyone has a kind of aha moment when it comes to their privacy or when like things really click, you know, you're kind of aware of it, but it becomes really personal. For me, it was, um, I think Rolling Stone wrote an article about me and they took a photo that was like a very personal photo from like a private Facebook Mm -hmm. um, account that wasn't a public account. And I don't know how they got it. And I, I was like, okay, social media is a problem. I need to rethink all of this stuff. Cause it, it was like in my living room and I was like, wow, this is so, feels so well, that's violating. also a responsibility too, right? Cause the one way of looking at that is saying, oh, well, the journalist should have known better. And then I'm guessing your argument in that circumstance, Kay, would be like, no, actually the designer should have anticipated that yeah. because that was also around about a period of time where there was a real gray area. And yes. there still is, you know, and there still is. And so so really the first principles approach toward that is to be like, no, actually, this could happen. Right. I think, and we can get into this a little later, my <laughs> my position on what the internet should be, what we should be doing on the internet has changed quite dramatically over the last five years. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I mean, you're exactly right. And, and you know, the, 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 the reality is essentially that like, uh, in, in particular, the, the, the <laughs> what the early internet was meant to be, which was this kind of, uh, virtual mirror, if you like, digital mirror of the real world, uh, that's only really suitable in very, very controlled circumstances. And as you said, Holly, like the, the, it, it's not even about necessarily the, the sensitivity of something. It's the access that, mm -hmm. that people, that we really struggle with. It's this form of um, what we assume to be public private versus the reality of what's actually public private mm. and how, and how like that access actually works. And, and like that, that tension point there is, is again, like it, 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 that access between what we are compelled to put online, both through our own social pressures, but then also from the, the, the broader, uh, I guess, marketing. Marketing narrative or. It's not the matter. It's like that we, we have like a mandate, like by using these services, the mandate that they're trying to push on us is that we have to like do our part by like performing online in these certain ways. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and yeah. so, and so that's like, that's the issue that that tension point there is like a primary, a primary thing that we still struggle with. The follow-up piece, which is really the genesis of, of the new design Congress is this piece that I wrote in 2019 called design ethics, no thanks, which I actually gave delivered as a talk in Osaka at DevCon, the Ethereum mm -hmm. foundation conference festival. And that was the reception to that is what convinced me that I had to actually put together this organization. So design ethics, no thanks takes the, the work of, uh, on weaponized design and extends it much further into a set of core principles of which some of which have a set of core principles, some of which I've described to you today, but it also expands on the idea of like, what's wrong with the, the mobilization that's especially happened in the last few years around responding to so-called instances of weaponized design and also broader transgressions by especially big tech, but not only big tech, just technology and infrastructure operators and designers in general mm. uh, and, and, and the broader public. And so one of the core critiques is that there's this between when I put out weaponized design and when I put out um, uh, the design ethics, no thanks piece was the rise of your Tristan Harris uh, style of approach or analysis, if you like, of, <laughs> of the problems, right? The problems. So Tristan Harris, and this is an entire world of this, that's, that ha it encompasses a lot of people's work, but essentially I use Tristan Harris because he's extremely well known and his, his work is, 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 you know, published on Netflix, for example. But the, essentially yeah. the idea here is that like, the reason why things are bad is because the ethics of the people involved were questionable. And thusly what we need to do is recontact, like train everybody up in, in, in ethics. Yep, and yep. then that will lead to a better outcome. Mm -hmm. yep. And the argument, the core argument of this is that actually the, the first principles of how we design things in a design led infrastructure world are fundamentally broken. And so in this drawing on the work of weaponized design and kind of seeing how, despite the fact that there was more security and more awareness of like ethics and things like this, that we were still seeing problems all the way through. We still see problems today. Yeah. The whole 
thrust of design ethics is to is to really criticize this the practice of design itself in in all of its forms, not just an interface design, but like infrastructure and protocol design as a as as a series of systems that through the very first principles of things like user stories or any of the other tools that we use to build things at scale, we actually obfuscate the real issues and stop ourselves from actually critiquing the work that we're doing in a way that is desperately needed. I use two examples in that piece, a historical one and a speculative one. The historical mm. example is facial recognition technology, which starts really becoming mainstream in 2010. And there's a very famous video in which uh, two employees of a, a an American uh, uh, like Walmart sort of big chain of some kind. It's not Walmart, but it's like some some big yep. chain uh, U.S. retailer. There's two employees there. One of them is a black man, and he's got a white older woman with them, and they're playing with an HP computer that has the ability to follow. The monitor can follow your gaze, so it can follow your face around as you as you look. And, and you know where I'm going with this, obviously, which is that mm-hmm. they can't see the black employee's face because the algorithm is racist. It's trained on data sets that basically prevent it from seeing his face, yeah. and it can follow his white colleague with no problem. So yeah. within that, there's two 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 cri- uh, two critical narratives emerge. One of them states that you know this is an early um, that, that facial recognition technology is is you know very dangerous, and we need to think about like what the issue is. But the more pervasive narrative is that. Oh, the facial recognition technology that sees Asian faces as people with their eyes shut and miss and and completely doesn't see black faces or does even more racist things with black faces. What we need to do is actually train those up and actually get them to a place where they are more equitable, where they the data sets mm-hmm. are more like more re- representative of real life. And so, by the end of the decade, what you end up with, are, you know, these concurrent realities of facial recognition technology. On the one hand, you have the for example, the Syrian refugee camps on the border at Jordan uh, that have funded that, 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 ironically enough, have blockchain-based solutions placed in them, where you use facial recognition and biometrics to pay for "quote unquote" your food um, as yeah. part of the UN Building Blocks Food Program mm-hmm. to to ensure that that the supply chain to the last mile isn't com- that doesn't have fraud committed inside it. But of course, within that is like a deeply structural power imbalance between the refugee who has uh, you know, no power in the situation and surrenders their basic biometrics, yeah. Um, and the people who are basically giving that 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 like providing those that, that relief program. Yeah. On the other hand, you have the Amazon Go stores, which are for those who don't live in the US, they're basically convenience stores that have no cashiers. And yeah. so, if you have an Amazon account, you walk in, you tap into like a turnstile and then you come out the other side and you can buy anything you want. And it's basically the roof is just covered in cameras and it's basically tracking your face the whole time. And when you check out, you basically tap out and everything's connected with smart tags and everything. And it's just a crazy surveillance system and it's super convenient somehow. Yep. <laughs> What's really interesting when you look at those two, especially the visual version of this, what I'm describing to you now is they're actually really similar. They're really mm-hmm. similar. They, 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 the the user experience of both of them is almost identical, but the key difference is power, right? And how that power is manifesting. So, for example, in the recent Texas snowstorms, you can imagine that something like an Amazon Go store suddenly is reconfigured to look more like a refugee uh, food distribution center. In this case, mm-hmm. it's a crisis refu- it's a crisis um, food distribution center. But the the technology is there, and it's basically identical for all intents and purposes. Yeah. But beyond that, there's a second issue, which is kind of keeps getting buried in this in the discussion of biometrics and facial recognition, which is, of course, the umbrella riots in Hong Kong in 2018 and 2019, uh, in which the biometrics and facial recognition were essentially scattered all through and blanketed all through the city. And at that point, it had become so useful uh, to an authoritarian state that the only thing that left to do was to physically tear up the, the the camera towers from the ground. And so while we were busy having this argument over the design ethics of facial recognition, it yeah. revealed itself to be an authoritarian technology. Mm-hmm. And so now what we have is a situation in which rather than seeing those early stages of this racist technology and say like the racist data sets and being like, well, we should really rethink what this is actually capable of. Instead, we tried to apply design ethics to it in order to then 
somehow come up with something better. But the underlying technology itself is born from an authoritarian, uh, it has inherent to it like a set of authoritarian use cases that are very hard to ignore. The speculative example of this is, I think, self-driving cars, where you look at the the discourse around self-driving cars once the Uber ran over and killed a, uh, tragically, a, a, um, a cyclist um, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, that ignited this huge debate about whether or not self-driving cars could, you know, be trained with ethics. And of course, like the really lazy version was the, I think it was Stanford, but I'm not entirely sure. I'll have to look it up. But there was a university in the United States that that ran a trolley problem question where you could log into it and it would ask you 20 examples of a trolley problem. The car is going to crash and you can choose to hit one type of person or another type of person. And like it's, it's like an, an it's like two old people or a baby or something. Yeah, or, or like for, a dog, context. a dog yeah. or 12 school kids and these kinds yeah, yeah, of things. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, by the way, always drive into the school kids. The dogs, dogs are sacred. Dogs are sacred. <laughs> okay. Official. That's the official, that's the official ethical sacred. position of the New Design Congress. Dogs are sacred. Seriously. No, but I jest, I jest, I jest. Um, the, 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 the point, the point though is that like, the point though is that it's the wrong question, right? Because yep. like, Within after you know within a few years after that study closed, um, we're still having the debate over essentially the trolley problem of, of yep. these technologies. Now, if you look to the future, what we have in the last three years are a series of cataclysmic events uh, around self drive around which self driving cars can't actually um, really respond to. So, a great example of this would be. So, I'm I'm jumping a little bit back and forward here, but. 2011, 2011, one of the most iconic things that happened in that year, of course, was the Fukushima nuclear reactor disaster and the associated earthquake. What you see, one of the most striking images that has basically remained in public consciousness as a result of that are the cars driving away from the tsunami in that region. These self-driving vehicles are essentially running on a, a series of statistics. It's, a, it's like a, a probability game that powers all forms of machine learning. And so when that, I mean, it's hard enough to struggle, like to, 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 to ensure that that runs properly in an orderly environment where you have cars on highways or on streets and you have some level of order in that space. Of course, this is the problem that any kind of crisis introduces, which is, you know, a person stepping out in front of a self-driving car. But what happens when instead of a person jumping out of, stepping out in front of a self-driving car, it's a wall of water coming to you, or let's be, instead of, um, Instead of going with something that's a freak accident, let's talk about things that have happened everywhere in the last two years. Intense forest fires up the east coast, the entirety of the east coast of Australia, basically trapping hundreds of thousands of people in, uh, like, in a thin slice between the road and the and and the sea. Right? You have mm-hmm. story after story and video after video of people literally driving through th- these fires. That are so intense and so hot that you know they they would overwhelm just just the intensity of the fire itself would overwhelm the sensors the infrared sensors inside a self driving car, but we didn't just see fires in Australia we saw them across the United States we saw them in the Arctic Circle in Siberia we saw them in Greece we saw them in Southeast Asia like what we have here and they're not they're not they're not regional fires they're not like somewhere in the middle of nowhere they're like trapping hundreds, potentially hundreds of thousands of people. So mm-hmm. while we're arguing over whether self-driving cars are like ethical or not, we're yep. rapidly reaching this place where if we were to introduce self-driving cars into the world, the risk of literally burning alive hundreds of thousands of people who cannot escape a forest fire because their car is incapable of doing so becomes very, very real. And so these two examples, the biometrics and facial recognition historical example and the speculative future of people driving away from from crisis mm. are these examples in which the, the the desire to be ethical and the desire for self like for, for for design ethics that account for intent and uh uh a high standard of of interaction or, or like decision making within design teams actually has no place in just de- determining like the outcomes of these technologies so that's like the core secondary piece for on weaponized design. I think that's I think that's very sober. I mean, I've got a, a few things to say about that. There's a lot there's a lot to cover, but like I think it's it's undeniable over the past 10 years, you know, and of course these are really really difficult topics to approach just generally by their very nature, but you know, the topic of ethics and virtue as a marketing uh, position for large companies has mm-hmm. emerged in the last 10 years and it, and it it and it kind of 
it, it puts you off balance in a sense, right? Because it's, it's quite difficult when, I mean, I saw something the other day that, you know, H&M just hired a, an AI ethics director or yeah. something, you know, like, like a, a, a company that's producing cheap disposable, you know, like, but, but, but AI ethics, irrespective of the fact that, you know, there are interesting applications of applying like ethics or moral questions or moral quant- quandaries to the topic of AI, irrespective from that, but this, the field of AI ethics emerging as this kind of very corporate, in a sense, you could see in some cases kind of smokescreen uh, uh, covering up larger issues, um, I think is very legitimate. I mean, we ran into this a little bit with with kind of music and AI stuff, right? Like yeah. there is a there is a large kind of very public discourse that occurs around, you know, like what does it mean for the artist to disappear and the AI to, you know, to create all this incredible music. And then when you, when you scratch at it a little bit, you're like, this is kind of just a marketing campaign for the people who are developing those systems. A little bit like Cambridge Analytica, actually, which you referenced in one of your pieces, I remember, where, you know, the, the whole AI kind of, the whole sorry, sorry, like ethical debate, in a sense, has this subtext that suggests, well, Cambridge Analytica are so advanced in their technology. They're doing mm. such incredible things. And people are like, oh, we should hire them, yeah. you know, but but the actual real debate, like at least for us, when it came to the whole AI music conversation, is like, yeah, like, uh, you know, we're using all like you have large companies sometimes in under the name of ethics, like companies, organizations that were that were started with their mandate being to think about the ethical considerations yeah. allegedly of this technology, um, and no one's having a discussion about compensating the labor of the people who create these data sets, right? Like that in my mind, which is like a far more kind of fundamental critique of the stuff being built is even, is an even harder argument to make when every organization has someone employed to look like the good guy. Right. And it brings that, but that ruins the party because then you have to address the fundamental core issue. Where is your data coming from? And that ruins everybody's research party when they could really just be like, well, let's make sure that this um, data that we're stealing from everyone is just equitably or like clean enough. Yeah, but that's, but that's the thing. It's like yeah. ethics are, are very, are very plastic in this way. Right. And you've got, but, but, but similarly, when you're talking about the facial recognition, I think that's a great example, right? Because, you know, what you then ha- what you have there is like okay you see an inequity take place and then the the kind of corporate ethical position can then push toward because you can imagine with the scenario that you mentioned right that like if amazon go is going to have these kind of automated uh kiosks or whatever mm-hmm. um by that logic it would be the ethical position to have the facial recognition systems treat faces of all stripes um equally right yes but that completely elides the completely elides the actual ethical question we need to have about the deployment of these technologies and it brings to mind that great meme right where it's like the you know some poor uh, people in the desert um looking at planes flying overhead and saying you know i'm so proud that the pilot dropping the bomb is a woman oh, yeah. right yeah, yeah right i mean this great meme that like kind of gets to the heart of some of the absurdity of all this stuff where you're yeah. kind of like which, but of course, the, the stuff is very difficult to pull apart also because, you know, representing women in the workplace is also important, right? But like, but, 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 it's, but it is a new device in a sense where, you know, corporations and, and these, kind of, these kind of structures seem so intent in a sense to not only want to be your friends, but to want to tell you how to do things, right? Like to take on that responsibility as some kind of a marketing, a new marketing tactic or device. Yeah, I mean, this gets to some of the, again, I, not to, I'm going to sound like I'm plugging myself and I'm really not. I, I think about this I mean, a lot. I mean, that's right? why you're here, Kate. We, we want you to talk about what <laughs> I'm, you think. I'm, no, I'm here, I'm here to, to, to tell you off about NFTs, but really, I'm... Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> no, but seriously, I'm, I'm you know, the whole, the, the thing that I realized was that the, the, I think the, the, the one thing that we can offer as, at New Design Congress is we've hit upon a, a, a configuration of basically expertise that allows us to marry the these kinds of critiques that we've been seeing today so so far with a slightly different perspective, which I think is a gateway into understanding these from a more systems-based approach, right? So, so the introduction, for example, of digital security and a, a deeper understanding of like how digital infrastructure actually operates, like deeper in the stack below the interface is a really like that that has turned out to be an extremely valuable thing in our work this year so far or last year in particular. Mm-hmm. So 
what that means is like we have a design, we have the way that we communicate this is like you start on the surface layer of the interface because it's a really it's a it's a great equalizer. A lot of people have a, at least a decent understanding of how interfaces work. But because we then have layers of expertise that go deeper into the infrastructure side of it and the digital security side of it, we can kind of apply things like threat modeling or other uh, practices that you would tr- traditionally keep out of these kinds of debates in that in into these into these these research topics. And what you're saying there about like. This is to me the most frustrating part about what you've just described here with the the, the discourse around ethics and, and and AI in particular. Now, I'm I'm of two minds. I think that uh, any artificial intelligence that essentially runs as a, a as a as a governance system for some sort of human system or non-human like a environmental system uh, is is a very dangerous system. Um, mm. To a point where I'm almost convinced that actually ethically ethical AI is is it's quite impossible. I, I'm I'm almost convinced completely that uh, striving for an ethical AI framework is is not possible. But I also believe that uh, I'm also very skeptical of this idea, like as you've described, of of the of the power and prowess of artificial intelligence uh, as a as a tool to completely replace things. I was a, a really good analogy for this is. Um, I won't name the person on on Twitter because they didn't do anything wrong, but I saw someone on Twitter who you guys probably follow as well, who was talking about how they wanted to become a blockchain lawyer. Mm. And that struck me as really funny because I thought the point of smart contracts was to get rid of lawyers entirely, (laughs) right? Like that was the rhetoric from 2016, right? When Ethereum and, and smart contracts were first beginning to appear was that we would have less reliance on on the legal system in some form. And the reality obviously has become that the opposite is true, that actually when you introduce these systems, the extra level of complexity means that you need more human support, not less, yeah. right? And so and so, the way that I would frame the critique that you're su- suggesting here is I think that in music especially, there are a number of organizations and companies that are trying very hard to replace to push the narrative that music can be written by machines almost exclusively. And the goal of that is really obvious, which is that you could then produce a form of content at scale that you could monetize that has no, no human labor associated with it. Not only do I not think that that's very likely, uh, I also think that it's not super compelling and actually goes against a lot of what people, why people listen to music in the first place. Um, But I also think that the prowess isn't there uh, in the same way that I, I wonder what, how close we're going to get to, I don't know, like deep fakes or things like that. Like you can tell a deep fake pretty easily by the fact that everyone has two left eyes and four, four front teeth, right? Will that get better over time? Maybe, but also maybe not, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more on the, on the music, um, comment. I think it, uh, there's just such a, a misunderstanding of what music and culture means and how it comes about. Uh, when it comes to a lot of this research, it's kind of a um, a very, uh, as Matt says, impoverished view of of culture and meaning making. Yeah, but it's also it also because like the the whole idea of of ethics, whatever. And trust me, like I'm no ethicist, right? Like I'm I'm no philosopher or whatever. But the core idea of that is, you know. I, we often make the analogy between, you know, like a, a, a protocol of belief systems and a technical protocol, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole the whole usefulness of a field of ethics is to look about as low level as one can, right? Because then you find exactly these first principles that you can apply, um, you can apply to things so as to avoid catastrophe in in the higher order or like the externalities of that decision that you make. Right. And the difficulty with the stuff, and particularly, I mean, we can speak with some authority on the AI music thing, but I think it ports to other other scenarios. The difficulty with this is that most people don't have that literacy, right? So it's quite easy to hijack and have a kind of fluffy ethical debate that that within its framing kind of forecloses the important discussion because the framing is, what are we going to do about you know, uh, algorithms that write music on behalf of all of us. And it's like, well, that is a very clever device 
um, it's a very, very clever device to kind of hijack a more important conversation because in truth, the most important conversation, if you wanted to have an ethical discussion about AI beyond uh, beyond some of the stuff that you've raised is, you know, for us, it's looking s- like square at uh, compensation, you know, like what happens when, you know, the way that these system work, these systems work, ultimately the, you know, the, the people who are able to accumulate the most data to produce the highest fidelity models, et cetera, is this is, this is a road to monopoly um, and not figuring out compensation very early is the most perilous thing. Cause I'm not concerned just as you've, as you've articulated, I'm not concerned about, you know, people wanting to listen to infinite ambient music for the rest of time. Um, when the conversation is hijacked in such a way, you know, one, we end up sounding like conspiracy theorists. Um, but number two, it's very difficult to get, it's very difficult to, to get more attention about this stuff because there isn't that core literacy, right? There are hijacks happening because most people just aren't literate enough in how these things work on the basic level. It's, it's too new. I feel like there's one phrase that kind of um, expresses both uh, maybe the kind of like uh, paradox here or like both views on it. And it's this question, like, can an algorithm be inspired? And some people use that sentence as like this kind of like magical, like, can can it be an artist? Can it be inspired? What does that mean for artists? And when I think of can an algorithm be inspired, inspiration is basically when humans see other humans work and then interpret that in some way. But when that kind of inspiration is um, automated and uh, kind of mechanized, is that then plagiarism? when it's done by a machine. And so like that one sentence of like, can an algorithm be inspired? But some people are going to take that as this kind of like whimsical kind of sentence when really it has more of a kind of like concrete underpinning. Issues get skirted and it's very, it's very easy to skirt issues on these big topics, particularly when they intersect with pop cultural understandings of what they might mean. Um, And yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's intensely uh, uh, frustrating, but, um, but, 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 but maybe, I mean, I think this is kind of an opportunity to, to move on and talk about how some of these principles of weaponized design were, you explored them recently related more to peer to peer infrastructure. Cause that's going to be a really nice segue for us to, to get into uh, our inevitable argument about, uh, about uh, uh, NFTs. <laughs> well, yeah. but can, I, can I have a, like a request when you, uh, introduce this and talk about this can you give uh the listener just like a brief history of some of this peer-to-peer stuff because some of these terms might be yeah totally yeah um niche and it's actually it's super interesting how some of these things have come about yeah Yeah. the last essentially since the development of, of the internet there's been a push towards two groups of people one is a centralization strategy where you form organizations and companies around digital infrastructure and use the fact that code is infinitely copyable and can be modified, et cetera, to basically build short circuits to power, shortcuts to power. On the other hand, there's been a group that has largely tried to remain decentralized or peer-to-peer. Peer-to-peer, of course, being a term of like one computer talking to another, and it's a one of many forms of decentralization. Uh, the Obviously, the first loop, if you like, because I think this cycle of, of, of decentralization, recentralization has happened over the course of, uh, since the early 90s, and has kind of repeated itself over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, the first loop is really like the, the genesis of the internet. And, and that's a really interesting time because you had your Stuart Brands and your um, John Perry Barlow types who are, who are basically are celebrating the idea of the introduction of the digital self and, and digital identity and this cyberspace. The declaration of cyberspace is this idea of one that is freed from geography and from governance and one in which we can inhabit anybody that we choose. It's this fusing of the rational identity with uh, a, like a, a, a very libertarian technological uh, application of, of, of the exchange of information and the exchange of, of, of human experience in this rationalist system. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that at the same time <laughs> was that there was another concurrent battle happening between Phil Zimmerman and the US government. Phil Zimmerman being, of course, the creator of Pretty Good Privacy PGP, which is a extremely strong but very, very hard to use encryption protocol for messages. Mm-hmm. And what Phil realized at this in within this context was that like any form of centralized power when it was threatened by a decentralized alternative would basically use that decentralized infrastructure to destroy that to put down that movement, whatever that looked like, and so he wrote this 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 encryption thing, uh, PGP, in order to produce a a working way in which people could communicate with each other in a very protected way. Up until that point, encryption was only really accessible to 
institutions or government or military. And also, if it wasn't, it was even harder to use than PGP was. And for that, the State Department took um, Phil Zimmerman to court and tried to prosecute him under the uh, Export Treaty, Arms and Exports Treaty um, legislation that Bill Clinton had signed into law. Mm-hmm. And that was a multi-year battle that Phil Zimmerman ended up winning. And so this sets the basis of like this tension between peer-to-peer technologies and the centralized systems. Mm-hmm. The next one, of course, which the two of you will be very familiar with, is the copyright war, if you like, that happened between a number of actors on the technology side and uh, your music industry and movie industry folks on the mm. centralized side. Of course, that starts with Napster. Napster, for anybody who isn't familiar with that, was like a centralized service that had a decentralized protocol in the sense that everyone logged into the same service, which was Napster, and then they would download music illegally, if you like, or they would perform copyright infringement because I don't like this term of illegal music downloads. I think it's a a myth, um, but or it's a re- misrepresentation, should I say? Mm-hmm. But essentially, what happened there was that you know the users would share their libraries online, and then uh, those would then have you know you could then download music off of a single person's computer, so you'd be exchanging files back and forth. Of course, because it was highly centralized, these uh, copyright holders were able to go after Napster itself and its uh, copycat clones that, that popped up as well and shut these systems down. And so in response to that, the, the, the a collection of activists, mostly in Europe, but not only in Europe, um, a collection of activists basically found this new protocol that had just been developed at the time called um, BitTorrent. BitTorrent was developed um, because the connections into people's homes was not fast enough to sustain large amounts of downloads. And so rather than paying for uh, paying for extreme amounts of bandwidth in order to share large files, the idea would be that you would host a file and then other people would connect to your machine and download parts of it. And over time, the decentralized nature of that would mean that a file that was one gigabyte big would be shared amongst potentially hundreds of people and you would download chunks of it from different computers all over the world. So you might have one chunk that came down very slowly because it was over the other side of the world, but you might have another chunk that downloaded in a few seconds because it was down the street. And so what that did was uh, that was a revolution in terms of connectivity and in terms of distribution of files. But then over that protocol was built this layer of, 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 uh, of, of technology and platforms and political movements that sought to basically dismantle the existing copyright, the intellectual property rights in the United States and in Europe. Mm-hmm. And that almost succeeded. Uh, in my research into this piece, I've, I found like uh, articles, for example, that basically prophesized the death of the music industry as we knew it. Uh, at that point, labels were struggling um, for a wide variety of reasons, not just because of copyright infringement, for a wide variety of reasons. But, you know, there was a real time there where people thought that that the, the current paradigm of labels, big labels and, and controlled distribution would be over. And then uh, essentially... <laughs> it's hard to think about now, uh, but but essentially what happened was, um, you know, and, and to give you an idea of how popular this was, this made it to a point where you had um, so like these 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 structures set up, these these web forums or these other forms of what they call like private trackers, in which people would enter into these systems um, through invite and have access to more music that was available than on something like Spotify. I'm sure you guys have talked about this on Interdependence in the past, but, totally but basically, Your yeah, what CDs of the world. And- what's mm-hmm. yeah. What CD and things like that. And you had these complete archives of, of music that were available to everybody. They had their own economies around ratios in which uploading and participating in the network, um, guaranteed your, um, your ability to stay in the network. So there was a, a, a sort of like a redistribution policy that was set up in a sort of borderline kind of, you know, the very leftist approach to internet culture, this idea of like voluntarily redistributing and having like minimum thresholds for that and so forth. Um, and and so but the thing was, this, this, this comes back to weaponized design. The thing was is that BitTorrent hadn't been designed with any kind of uh, paranoia in mind about how that could then be used by anybody to weaponize the design itself and, and come after people. So in the case of, of this copyright infringement, the Pirate Bay, what CD, these sorts of services, the the copyright holders realized that they could actually use that network entirely, the BitTorrent network, and just map everybody in that network who is engaged in uh, participating in, in, in these communities. And then they could find IP addresses and go after people all over the world, which they did successfully. So during the, mm-hmm. the early 2010s or the, the, the late sort of 
2000s, early 2010s, uh, we saw the rise of copyright lawsuits where people like they would literally target and usually they would target, they would try to find out as much as they could about their, um, their potential lawsuit um, targets. And they would try to go for people who would settle out of court and so yeah. forth. But in, they went after hundreds of thousands of people. And even today in places like Germany, you can get um, threatening letters from rights holders around this. It's an automated yeah. economy and like an, a whole ecosystem that is set up around mm-hmm. basically weaponizing the design of BitTorrent in order to extort people for money. Yeah. And so, so that, that movement got so close. It got so close to dismantling um, the current copyright structure. And instead, um, it, its design was used against it in order to dismant- completely dismantle this political movement. Then at the same time, uh, two members of the most, one of the most popular um, uh, BitTorrent clients, because essentially you download a client, like an email client, but for you know, uh, distributing files, you download that client to your computer and then you like, point it to a, an address and then it will start the process of sharing and receiving files. Two members of the most popular, one of the most popular clients um, left that client and formed a music business. Uh, that they, from all of the learnings that they had gained from working in the BitTorrent space. And they, of course, are Daniel Ek, um, who uh, you might know as uh, the CEO of Spotify, and um, one of his chief engineers, uh, Ludwig Strigas, who uh, is this absolute genius programmer in, a decentralized, um, in, in the decentralization space, in the peer-to-peer space, who basically built... Uh, alongside a handful of other early Spotify employees, the first version of Spotify. And there's this great book called Spotify Teardown Inside the Black Box of Streaming Music, where they basically hint at um, the early content being populated, not necessarily by music that they had intrinsically the rights to in order yeah. to basically build the, the the Spotify network. So essentially what happened was, uh, this is very clear, is that uh, in this decentralized centralization war, not only was the decentralization system basically weaponized against itself to literally crush people, like ruin people's lives. But then the technologies themselves were repurposed uh, by the centralized copyright holders. And so, of course, what we have today is um, Disney, which was at one point deeply threatened by this, this reorganization of, of copyright law. Disney being, you know, owning one quarter or something of the, um, of, you know, U.S.'s cultural output, of popular culture output. And so... What what this what this is getting at is is a fundamental issue that is tied back to what Holly, you and Matt were talking about earlier, um, which I'm you know responding to as part of this, which is that like within this these systems, and we're reaching another point with this now, I believe the the rhetoric that we're producing as part of this uh, as part of the, 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 these desires to build movements and and essentially to build infrastructure to express and like essentially cultivate alternative structures for power, whatever those uh, reasons for doing so is not really that important in this context. But in doing so, what we're actually doing is repeating the same mistakes from the past, right? And so in in this case, uh, I can give another example of this because it hasn't quite happened yet with, with you know, the cryptocurrency scene. But another example is this rise now of uh, decentralized social media alternatives, which are in a lot of cases built from the prior work that was done in, in BitTorrent and things like that. We have examples such as Secure Scuttlebutt, which is a very, very elegantly designed on, uh, offline first information exchange network where you can plug in and sort of disconnect whenever you want. It's, you know, designed by a bunch of people who self-describe as being built at sea. So they do a lot of, they, they build a social network for themselves so that when they're outside of cell tower range, they can still communicate and then come back and sync up. Another example would be ActivityPub and the Fediverse, which is a collection of technologies that that facilitate sort of decentralized alternatives or, or federated alternatives to, to um services such as Instagram or uh, Twitter and things like that. And what we have ultimately here is it's this fundamental lack of understanding around things like how centralization protects you in certain ways. It protects you from risk. Yeah. It protects you once you centralize a system. The The risk is then essentially held entirely by the platform that has centralized. And so if you look at something like um, the historical example of <laughs> BitTorrent, what you have is this 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 problem in which once you decentralize, 
every single person in that network has to account for their own risk. So you've, mm-hmm. you've, you've, you've decided that you're going to build this movement, but you've offered no protection at all to anybody involved in that movement, whether they know they're involved directly or not. And we see this again with like the rise of these, these, uh, these new platforms that are coming out now. I mean, for example, Secure Scuttlebutt is, uh, I, I have a great respect for it. I think it's an amazing tool, but it also uses a form of a blockchain. It uses signed commits, if you like, in order to, to keep track of who said what, when, and basically build a, tra- a chain of a timeline of the interactions in that system. This goes right down to avatar changes in the system. Like the, again, the rationalist identity of like producing your own identity and putting it online in this space. That that identity is tracked, and and those commits are written to a this this system, and the act of following or unfollowing people or like entering a space or exiting a space, what you say, etc. All of it is is written and can't easily be redacted. And so essentially, this space, which is also populated by a, a large amount of like um, post capitalist or degrowth kinds of groups, you have a huge solar punk community there. You have mm-hmm. a whole bunch of people whose you know politics. Uh, are quite uh, developed and extremely uh, not necessarily uh, quite anti-capitalist. They're essentially discussing their futures in a forensically secure system, yep. a forensically secure system that could be analyzed in order to to prosecute anybody if something were to happen that yep. attracted yep. the attention of, of of a state. Now you might think that's paranoid, except the other day one of the core developers of these of the Fed, like these Fediverse technologies. Uh, like someone who's built a career off of, you know, contributing to these projects was tweeting about how they are trying to roll out Fediverse infrastructure into the Myanmar um, pushback against the coup. So if you think that like people being sued for using BitTorrent is bad, like this is, this is the danger that we have. Well, that's one of the interesting conundrums, right? Because I was going to mention that a little bit earlier and I'm, I'm glad it, and I'm glad it came up again in this context, but like, you know, and of course, like when talking about centralization or decentralization, like the two extremes of the poles are both negative, right? Absolutely. Like, um, and so I think one of the sober things about your analysis just generally is it is quite correct in the sense that it, it's a sober reminder that there's no silver bullet, right? There's no panacea, like, you know, unintended consequences. There is, one could critique it in a sense to suggest that, you know, unintended consequences are a constant, right? That this is, that there's potentially something truistic to it. Um, however, um, the one thing I do really appreciate, and 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 that that example of Myanmar, I, I didn't actually catch that, but the um, it, it's, it, it qualifies your point even further, I think, right? Because one of the core arguments, one of the arguments I am most compelled by, by the kind of concentration of power of, you know, centralized platforms is this kind of argument about like California hegemony, right? Like yes, this absolutely. idea that, you know, and, and I think you mentioned, you know, your weaponized design principle gets to this quite clearly, right? Where, you know, you might think, and even the ethics conversation, you might think you're doing the right thing in your, you know, in San Francisco with an experience of living in Seattle and thinking about all these, you know, wonderful virtuous principles that are really important to you. But the second that you push that code and someone in a village in Pakistan is using it equally, you know, uh, uh, you know, there are unintended consequences. Uh, there are, there are significant unintended consequences to that. Uh, and it is kind of a problem and maybe a, a strong argument for a degree of decentralization that those decisions be made somewhere more locally so that you right. don't get people falling within the cracks. Right. And this is the example of, 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 of Myanmar that, that you're describing, right? Like what works for some seemingly really smart, really lovely, like kind of lefty libertarians uh, who like to sail. And I assume also, you know, <laughs> are, are fairly well off. Some of those principles are advantageous to deploy potentially in places like Myanmar or in places with struggle. It's yeah. not an either or thing. I would challenge your use of the term unintended consequence. Like to me, this sure. is this is precisely the point of like what we're trying to do at the New Design Congress. The reality is I use the example, the part of the reason why I talked about these as a series of loops um, is because you can see a point in time where there was a level of paranoia and that there was like a, a kind of equalizer between the Californian ideology and the paranoia against the state, or not even just the state, the paranoia against the actor in these these spaces. We are ultimately far more vulnerable online than we are in physical space in most cases. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, 
a, a large part of that comes from this, what we've just talked about, the idea of, of scale. Um, but with that too is a, an equally uh, disturbing trend, which is over the course of the generational um, uh, introduction of new, new programmers, new platforms, new movements, et cetera, uh, the paranoia that was there is not a mainstream paranoia. Uh, mm. the, it, it, because that's what I mean when I say there's no such thing as an unintended consequence. I don't have any special insight into these systems except for a high degree of paranoia, which has been, you know, it's just come from my work in digital security as a designer. And that's what makes, you know, the new design Congress kind of special in a sense. Ideally, I'd love to reach a point where I don't get to come on podcasts and say the new design Congress is... You're listening to the free version of this podcast. If you would like to hear the full version and support this series, please visit patreon.com slash interdependence. This podcast is ad-free and only possible through patron support. Thank you. Hey!